Part 3 of Part 2nd of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by Georges du Maurier. Part 2nd, Part 3. Then he served more punch and cake all round, and just as he was going to begin himself, Papelard said, Say, you others, I find that the Englishman has something of truly distinguished in the voice, something of sympathetic, of touching, something of je ne sais quoi. Bouchardie, yes, yes, something of je ne sais quoi. That's the very phrase, n'est-ce pas, vous autres? That is a good phrase that Papalard has just invented to describe the voice of the Englishman. He is very intelligent, Papalard. Chorus. Perfect, perfect. He has the genius of characterization, Papalard. Dis donc, l'anglais. Once more that beautiful song, eh? Nous vous en prions tous. Little Billy willingly sang it again, with even greater applause. And again they galloped, but the other way round and faster so that little Billy became quite hysterical and laughed till his sides ached. Then Dubois. I find there is something of very capitous and exciting in English music, of very stimulating. And you, Bouchardy? Bouchardy. Oh, me! It is above all the words that I admire. They have something of passionate, of romantic. These gloves, these gloves, they do not belong to me. I don't know what that means, but I love that sort of, 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 je ne sais quoi, in short. Just once more, l'anglais, only once, the bar couplets. So he sang it a third time, all four verses, while they leisurely ate and drank and smoked, and looked at each other, nodding solemn commendation of certain phrases in the song. Très bien, très bien. Ah, voilà qui est bien réussi. Et patent, ça. Très fin, etc etc. For, stimulated by success and rising to the occasion, he did his very utmost to surpass himself in emphasis of gesture and accent and histrionic drollery, heedless of the fact that not one of his listeners had the slightest notion what his song was about. It was a sorry performance, and it was not till he had sung it four times that he discovered the whole thing was an elaborate impromptu farce, of which he was the butt, and that all of his royal spread, not a crumb or a drop, was left for himself. It was the old fable of the fox and the crow, and to do him justice he laughed as heartily as any one, as if he thoroughly enjoyed the joke, and when you take jokes in that way people soon leave off poking fun at you. It is almost as good as being very big, like Taffy, and having a choleric blue eye. Such was little Billy's first experience of Carrel's studio, where he spent many happy mornings and made many good friends. No more popular student had ever worked there within the memory of the greyest greybeards. None more amiable, more genial, more cheerful, self-respecting, considerate and polite, and certainly none with greater gifts for art. Carrel would devote at least fifteen minutes to him and invited him often to his own private studio, and often on the fourth or fifth day of the week a group of admiring students would be gathered by his easel, watching him as he worked. C'est un rude lapin, l'anglais. Au moins, il sait son orthographe en peinture, ce coco-là. Such was the verdict on little Billy at Carrel's studio, and I can conceive no much loftier praise. 
young as she was, seventeen or eighteen or thereabouts, and also tender, like little Billy, Trilby had singularly clear and quick perceptions in all matters that concerned her tastes, fancies, or affections, and thoroughly knew her own mind, and never lost much time in making it up. On the occasion of her first visit to the studio in the Place Saint-Anatole des Arts, it took her just five minutes to decide that it was quite the nicest, homeliest, genialest, jolliest studio in the whole Quartier Latin, or out of it, and its three inhabitants, individually and collectively, were more to her taste than anyone else she had ever met. In the first place they were English, and she loved to hear her mother tongue and speak it. It awoke all manner of tender recollections, sweet reminiscences of her childhood, her parents, her old home, such a home as it was, or rather such homes, for there had been many flittings from one poor nest to another. The O'Ferrells had been as birds on the bough. She had loved her parents very dearly, and indeed, with all their faults, they had many endearing qualities, the qualities that so often go with those particular faults, charm, geniality, kindness, warmth of heart, the constant wish to please, the generosity that comes before justice, and lends its last sixpence and forgets to pay its debts. She knew other English and American artists, and had sat to them frequently for the head and hands. But none of these, for general agreeableness of aspect or manner, could compare in her mind with the stalwart and magnificent taffy, the jolly fat laird of Cockpen, the refined, sympathetic and elegant little Billy, and she resolved that she would see as much of them as she could, that she would make herself at home in that particular studio, and necessary to its locataire, and without being the least bit vain or self-conscious, she had no doubts whatever of her power to please to make herself both useful and ornamental, if it suited her purpose to do so. Her first step in this direction was to borrow Père Martin's basket and lantern and pick. He had more than one set of these trade properties, for the use of Taffy, whom she feared she might have offended by the freedom of her comments on his picture. Then, as often as she felt it to be discreet, she sounded her war cry at the studio door and went in and made kind inquiries and, sitting cross-legged on the model throne, ate her bread and cheese, and smoked her cigarette, and passed the time of day, as she chose to call it, telling them all such news of the quartier as had come within her own immediate ken. She was always full of little stories of other studios, which, to do her justice, were always good-natured, and probably true, quite so as far as she was concerned. She was the most literal person alive and she told all these ragots, cancans, et potins d'atelier in a quaint and amusing manner. The slightest look of gravity or boredom on one of those three faces, and she made herself scarce at once. She soon found opportunities for usefulness also. If a costume were wanted, for instance, she knew where to borrow it, or hire it, or buy it cheaper than anyone anywhere else. She procured stuffs for them at cost price, as it seemed, and made them into draperies and female garments of any kind that was wanted, and sat in them for the Toreador's sweetheart, she made the mantilla herself, for Taffy's starving dressmaker about to throw herself into the Seine, for little Billy's studies of the beautiful French peasant girl in his picture, now so famous, called The Pitcher Goes to the Well. Then she darned their socks and mended their clothes, and got all their washing done properly and cheaply at her friend Madame Boisse's, in the Rue des Cloîtres Saint-Petroni. And then again, when they were hard up and wanted a good round sum of money for some little pleasure excursion, 
such as a trip to Fontainebleau or Barbizon, for two or three days. It was she who took their watches and scarf-pins and things to the Mount of Piety, in the street of the Well of Love, where dwelt ma tante, which is French for my uncle, in this connection, in order to raise the necessary funds. She was, of course, most liberally paid for all these little services, rendered with such pleasure and good will. Far too liberally, she thought. She would have been really happier doing them for love. Thus, in a very short time, she became a persona gratissima. Thus, in a very short time, she became a persona gratissima, a my and ever welcome vision of health and grace and liveliness, an unalterable good humour, always ready to take any trouble to please her beloved Anglish, as they were called by Madame Vinard, the handsome, shrill-voiced concierge, who was almost jealous, for she was devoted to the Anglish too, and so was Monsieur Vinard, and so were the little Vinard. She knew when to talk, and when to laugh, and when to hold her tongue, and the sight of her sitting cross-legged on the model iron, darning the lead socks, or sewing buttons on his shirts, or repairing the smoke-holes in his trousers, was so pleasant that it was painted by all three. One of these sketches, in watercolour, little Billy, sold the other day at Christie's for a sum so large that I hardly dare to mention it. It was done in an afternoon. Sometimes on a rainy day, when it was decided they should dine at home, she would fetch the food and cook it and lay the cloth, and even make the salad. She was a better saladist than Taffy, a better cook than the laird, better caterer than little Billy, and she would be invited to take her share in the banquet, and on these occasions her tremulous happiness was so immense that it would be quite pathetic to see, almost painful, and their three British hearts were touched by thoughts of all the loneliness and homelessness, the expatriation, the half-conscious loss of taste, that all this eager childish clinging revealed. And that is why, no doubt, that with all this familiar intimacy there was never any hint of gallantry or flirtation in any shape or form whatever, bonne camaraderie, voilà tout. Had she been little Billy's sister, she could not have been treated with more real respect, and her deep gratitude for this unwanted compliment transcended any passion she had ever felt. As the good La Fontaine so prettily says, ces animaux vivaient entre eux comme cousins. Cette union si douce est presque fraternelle, édifiée tous les voisins. And then their talk. It was to her as the talk of the gods in Olympus, save that it was easier to understand, and she could always understand it. For she was a very intelligent person, in spite of her woefully neglected education, and most ambitious to learn, a new ambition for her. So they lent her books, English books, Dickens, Thackeray, Walter Scott, which she devoured in the silence of the night, the solitude of her little attic in the Rue des Pouscailloux, and new worlds were revealed to her. She grew more English every day, and that was a good thing. Trilby speaking English and Trilby speaking French were two different beings. Trilby's English was more or less that of her father, a highly educated man. Her mother, who was a Scotchwoman, although an uneducated one, had none of the ungainliness that mars the speech of so many English women in that humble rank, no droppings of the H, no broadening of the O's and A's. Trilby's French was that of the Quartier Latin, droll, slangy, piquant, quaint, picturesque, quite the reverse of ungainly, but in which there was scarcely a turn of phrase that would not stamp the speaker as being hopelessly, emphatically, no lady. 
though it was funny without being vulgar, it was perhaps a little too funny, and she handled her knife and fork in the dainty English way, as no doubt her father had done, and his, and indeed, when alone with them, she was so absolutely like a lady, that it seemed quite odd, though very seductive, to see her in a grisette's cap and dress and apron, so much for her English training. But enter a Frenchman or two, and a transformation effected itself immediately. A new incarnation of trilbiness, so droll and amusing that it was difficult to decide which of her two incarnations was the more attractive. It must be admitted that she had her faults, like little Billy. For instance, she would be miserably jealous of any other woman who came to the studio to sit or scrub or sweep or do anything else, even of the dirty tipsy old hag who sat for Taffy's found drowned, as if she couldn't have sat for it herself. And then she would be cross and sulky, but not for long, an injured martyr soon ready to forgive and be forgiven. She would give up any sitting to come and sit to her three English friends. Even Durian had serious cause for complaint. Then her affection was exacting. She always wanted to be told one was fond of her. And she dearly loved her own way, even in the sewing on of buttons and the darning of socks, which was innocent enough. But when it came to the cutting and fashioning of garments for a Toreador's bride, it was a nuisance not to be borne. What could she know of Toreador's brides and their wedding dresses? The laird would indignantly ask, as if he were a Toreador himself and this was the aggravating side of her irrepressible trilbiness. In the caressing, demonstrative tenderness of her friendship, she made the soft eyes at all three indiscriminately. But sometimes little Billy would look up from his work as she was sitting to Taffy, or the lad, and find her grey eyes fixed on him with an all-enfolded gaze, so piercingly, penetratingly, unutterably sweet and kind and tender, such a brooding dove-like look of soft and warm solicitude, that he would feel a flutter at his heart, and his hand would shake so that he could not paint. And in a waking dream he would remember that his mother had often looked at him like that when he was a small boy, and she a beautiful young woman untouched by care or sorrow, and the tear that always lay in readiness so close to the corner of little Billy's eye would find it very difficult to keep itself in its proper place, unshed. And at such moments the thought that Trilby sat for the figure would go through him like a knife. She did not sit promiscuously to anybody who asked, it is true, but she still sat to Durian, to the great Jérôme, to Monsieur Carrel, who scarcely used any other model. It was poor Trilby's sad distinction that she surpassed all other models, as Calypso surpassed her nymphs, and whether by long habit or through some obtuseness in her nature, or lack of imagination, she was equally unconscious of self with her clothes on, or without. Truly she could be naked and unashamed, in this respect an absolute savage. She would have ridden through Coventry like Lady Godiva, but without giving it a thought beyond wondering why the streets were empty and the shops closed and the blinds pulled down. Would even have looked up to Peeping Tom's shutter with a friendly nod, had she known he was behind it. In fact she was absolutely without that kind of shame as she was without any kind of fear, but she was destined soon to know both fear and shame. And here it would not be amiss for me to state a fact well known to all painters and sculptors who have used the nude model, except a few shady pretenders whose purity, not being of the right sort, has gone rank from too much watching, namely, that nothing is so chaste as nudity.
Venus herself, as she drops her garments and steps onto the model throne, leaves behind her on the floor every weapon in her armory by which she can pierce to the grosser passions of man. The more perfect her unveiled beauty, the more keenly it appeals to his higher instincts. And where her beauty fails, as it almost always does somewhere in the Venuses who sit for hire, the failure is so lamentably conspicuous in the studio light, the fierce light that beats on this particular throne, that Don Juan himself, who has not got to paint, were fain to hide his eyes in sorrow and disenchantment, and fly to other climes. All beauty is sexless in the eyes of the artist at his work, beauty of man, the beauty of woman, the heavenly beauty of the child, which is the sweetest and best of all. Indeed it is woman, lovely woman, whose beauty falls the shortest for sheer lack of proper physical training. As for Trilby, G, to whom she sat for his phryne, once told me that the sight of her thus was a thing to melt Sir Galahad, yet sober Silenus and chasten Jove himself, a thing to quixotize a modern French masher. I can well believe him. For myself, I only speak of Trilby as I have seen her, clothed and in her right mind. She never sat to me, any phryne, never bared herself to me, nor did I ever dream of asking her. I would as soon have asked the Queen of Spain to let me paint her legs. But I have worked for many female models, in many countries, some of them the best of their kind. I have also, like Svengali, seen Taffy trying to get himself clean, either at home or in the swimming baths of the Seine, and never a sitting woman among them all, who could match for grace or finish or splendour of outward form, that mighty Yorkshireman sitting in his tub or sunning himself, like Ilysses at the Bain Henri IV, or taking his running header à la Hussard off the springboard at the Bain de Ligny, with a group of wandering Frenchmen gathered round. Up he shot himself into mid-air with a sounding double-downward kick, parabolically, then turning a splendid semi-demi-somersault against the sky, down he came headlong, his body straight and stiff as an arrow, and made his clean hole in the water without splash or sound, to reappear a hundred yards farther on. Sac à papier, quel gaillard que cet anglais, hein? A-t-on jamais vu un torse pareil? Et les bras, donc? Et les jambes, non d'un tonnerre? Matin, j'aimerais mieux être en colère contre lui qui ne sort en colère contre moi, etc., etc., etc. Omne ignotum pro magnifico. End of part three, part second. Recording by Estelle Jobson, Rome, Italy.